0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, this week, this will be the last of our curious series for this go around, anyways. Uh, The sermons for this series have come from your questions, and uh, we've covered a wide array of interesting and hopefully helpful topics. Uh, Tonight's question is one that was asked at least partially, I think, with the intent of being humorous, and it did make me chuckle, uh, but it will give us an opportunity to deal with a subject that a lot of people have questions about. So I think that's going to be good for us. So the question was, will there be... Chipotle in heaven. My first thought was, if there is, then the spoon they use to scoop your protein choice needs to be at least double the size that it is now, because I often leave that line feeling like I was less than served well with the chicken amount. Um, that's good. Got to amen on that. All right, you're with me. My my second thought was, how how glorious would it be if, like salvation, uh, the guacamole was free? So these are the two first thoughts I had, uh, and I I think those are legitimate. Uh, The Bible tells us much less specifics about eternity than we would like. Uh, The Bible doesn't mention anything that would lead me to believe there will be Chipotle in heaven, but Revelation 19 does describe a wedding feast of the Lamb. So there will be food, praise God for that. Uh, And by faith, I believe it's going to make my chicken and salad bowl covered in green Tabasco sauce look like table scraps. I mean, that's my hope. If there's food in heaven, I think it'll be a lot better than anything I've experienced here, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Though I think this asker may have been joking at least a little, I I do think their question can help us think through some pretty important things. So whether it is Chipotle or nature or relationships... I think there is often some anxiety about what will and won't be present when we finally inhabit our eternal and heavenly country, as Hebrews 11 calls it. So what I want to do is read all of Revelation 21 with you. I realize that's a whole chapter, uh, but it's not a very long one, and there's no good place to stop, and we like the scriptures here, so we're going to do it, okay? Uh, and then we're going to see what the Lord has for us today. So we're going to read together Revelation 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the s- verses will be on the screens. If you don't have a Bible that you own and you want one, we have them for free. We've got cases of them because uh, we really, really enjoy giving people Bibles. So if you want one, we got one for you. Okay, so we're going to read Revelation 21. I'm starting in verse 1. Here we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city, Had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall, Was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Praise God for his word. Amen. Whew. It's one of them things, man. You can about read that and sit down. I'm not going to do that, though. We're going to keep going. Hallelujah. Thankful for the Lord. His perfect word. Uh, I don't remember if I said this, but basically the question, is there a Chipotle in heaven, is going to lead us to just talk about what heaven is like in general. Because I think a lot of people ask that. They wonder that. What is heaven like? Uh, and this gives us uh, at least some of what the Bible says about it. Uh, and things that uh, as I read this and, and other certain passages about uh, our eternal abode with the Lord. It's hard for me to keep my composure at times, so uh, hopefully I can hold it together for the sermon. But uh, as many of you know, there is much debate surrounding eschatology, which is the study of end things. Uh, there is debate on where things should be taken as imagery uh, or as literal. There is debate on timelines and order of events. There's debate on what is described here, whether this is in a heavenly realm, uh, this New Jerusalem, or If this describes the time after final judgment when we take up residence in our final habitation, that being the new earth. Uh, All of that debate is tragic to me because I don't believe God has revealed what he's revealed about eternity with him so we could argue about vague specifics. I believe he's shown us enough to stir in us a holy desire to be with him in perfect joy and perfect relationship. And to desire this for as many other people as possible. Obviously, he hasn't told us everything we'd like to know. But he's told us enough that we should want more than anything else to be with him on that day. And we should want that for others. I believe that's the point of what he has revealed. Uh, So let's start with what we know for sure from the scriptures will not be in heaven. uh, And then we'll look at some of what the Bible says will be there. So I'm coming back to verse 4 as I begin this line of thinking. Uh, it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's, that's a very tender and beautiful picture. It's much like a small child skins their knee outside and comes in, and, and the, the loving care of a mother that wipes those tears away. This, this is a gentle, personal touch from God to each. Uh, and the fact that he would have that kind of interaction with each of us says something about who he is and his great love for us. But uh, it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer... There will no longer be any death. So talking about things we know will not be in eternity. Death is one. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see death taunted, where it says, O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Once we've been reunited with our Savior in eternity, there will be no more possibility of death. And this is beautiful for many reasons, but one of them is because it removes all possibility of fear which means we will be able to finally obey perfectly the most common command in the scriptures, which is to fear not. More often than anything else that God tells us to do, he says either fear not or do not fear. And he always ties those commands either to the fact that he is with us or just who he is. Fear not, for I am God, or fear not, for I am with you. Uh, And you, you may be saying, well, if there's no death, why does that mean automatically there's no fear? You kind of made a logical jump there. I know, but I'm going to explain. All fear is really a fear of death. And maybe you haven't thought about that, and maybe you're, you're the one that likes to sit in sermons and find something to disagree about. So that's good. Let's do that right now. Let's, let's jab and, and let's hook and jab on this. All right? So I'll just challenge you to think of anything, any fear people have. Okay? Think of heights. Why are people afraid of heights? Are they afraid of heights? Because there's distance between them and the ground, or are they afraid of heights because if they fall into that distance between them and the ground and hit the ground, what's going to happen? They're going to die, right? Uh, Fear of snakes. Are you really afraid of snakes? I know they wriggle weirdly, and some of you, that's a really big deal, but really what's built in there is a fear that that snake's going to bite you or squeeze you and kill you, right? Uh, Spiders, same deal, right? You're afraid that spider's going to bite you. And kill you. Uh, you might say, "Okay, yeah, that's fine." But the number one fear, since you know I study stuff, is public speaking. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, actually, it does, because God made us to live together and to help each other, and it is unnatural for us to be alone with no love or relationships in this life. That's clear from the way God created us and what He called us to do: be fruitful and multiply. He created us for community to live together. And so, fear of public speaking is really fear of rejection from everybody else, and it's ultimately a fear that I'm going to be cast out of the social group, and I'm not going to be accepted, and then I'm going to be alone, and I'm going to die. That's really what it is. Uh, and so there will be no death, there will be no fear in eternity with God. The next line says, there will be no mourning or crying. Uh, once we are restored into the presence of our perfect Father, there will be no more reason for Sadness. There will be no more sadness because there will be no more sin. And sin is the only reason any sad things have ever been true. Is that a big statement? Did you think about that with me? Sin is the only reason any sad things have ever been true. All sadness will be gone in eternity with God because all sin will be gone. Both sin and death were defeated through the sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus but we will not experience the fullness of that victory until we are finally home with him. And that's just one thing I want to say here that I'm not going to go off on a rabbit trail on. You hold me accountable, okay? I'm going to say this real quick and I'm coming back. That's part of the problem with the prosperity gospel, okay? The prosperity gospel looks at things like this and they see that sometimes God will almost reach into those eternal promises and sometimes will bring that to us. Sometimes there's there's peace, there's healing, uh, sometimes there is prosperity. There's things that, that look much like our eternal promises that God will grant us in this life, but He has not promised that all the time and for everybody. And when you, when you do that, when you try to make God do now everything that He's promised for eternity, you, you end up with a, a very messed up understanding of how God and man relate to each other and, re, and, and expectations. That God has not said are okay to have, and then people end up disappointed. It makes God look like he's a liar when people say, hey, serve the Lord. You'll always be healthy. You'll always have all the money you need. You won't have any problems, and if you have any of those, it's just because you don't have enough faith. One day, there will be no sadness. One day, there will be no lack. There will be no death. There will be none of these things, Uh, but that day is not this day. That day is coming, I praise God for that and look forward to it, and I hope that part of what happens today is all of us, uh, with greater focus and with greater passion, look forward to that day. The next thing it says is there's no more pain. Now, if the prospect of this promise right here, no more pain, makes you even a little excited, let me hear you say amen. Amen on that one, because man... I'm not old enough to hurt as bad as I do sometimes, and I'm looking forward to uh, not feeling that anymore. Praise God. The Bible teaches that we will have resurrected bodies like Jesus. That means uh, we may bear scars from our journey through this world, but instead of those being a source of pain, they'll be a source of rejoicing uh, as we share stories for eternity of God's faithfulness as we sojourn through this life. When it comes to these resurrected bodies uh, that we're going to have, folks have a lot of questions. Many of them we don't have full, complete answers to, and a lot of times when it comes to what we're talking about tonight, you will encounter a lot of guessing and conjecture that will be presented as if it's fact, uh, people reaching for straws and things like that. you got to be careful for that, and make sure if somebody's telling you something about what is going to be true in eternity, there is, there is really strong, not like... An inference built on an inference, but scriptural support for it. And we need to be humble enough to understand God has only told us what we need to know about eternity. He's told us enough that we should absolutely yearn for it uh, and be excited for that day we're reunited with him uh, forever. But he hasn't told us everything we'd like to know. Um, So we need to be careful when people act like uh, they know everything about it. Uh, People have questions about resurrected bodies like, what age will we be once we're resurrected? We're going to be old or young, or will we be whatever age we were when we passed away? Uh, some have even said that since Jesus was thirty-three at his death, that we will all be that age. Uh, I don't see any good scriptural support for that. That's 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 what I'm talking about when I say an inference built on an inference. Like, well, maybe that's true. Well, yeah, maybe. You know, <laughs> maybe I could play in the NBA if I tried, but probably not. So. <laughs> Let's not talk about it, right? Like, let's move on. So, um, I think we can surmise from God's creation of Adam and Eve uh, that they were not babies when he made them, but they were mature adults, that it is it is possible, uh, and also likely because of what we see described in uh, the Bible about eternity, that we will have a body that is mature enough for us to participate in all that God has in store for us. So, uh, there's there's good reason to believe that whether age will even be something you could use to describe what those resurrected bodies will be like because, of course, it's it's going to be an eternal timeline which then makes chronology kind of useless. The point is, God will make it so that everybody in their resurrected body can participate in all that is described as far as heaven is concerned. So, uh, you know, if... I, I could see it being possible that if somebody was 90 and barely able to walk when they uh, went on to be with the Lord, that uh, they may get to rewind some years on that resurrected body, right? So, um, And I, I could see him perhaps uh, adding some maturity to young ones to the past. But let me just say that all of that is also guesswork. But looking at, looking at the fact that it, it is within God's ability... Uh, to kind of place somebody where he needs them in the age spectrum, a la Adam and Eve, okay? So that's, that's my whole point there. Um, so no more pain was that whole heading. Praise God for that. I uh, just want to say it one more time. Uh, Jesus taught, so we're still talking about things that are not going to be in eternity. Jesus taught that relationships will be different in eternity, okay? Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus says this, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, so here's the first thing. Before I get to really what I want to get to, the first thing I want to address from this scripture is, um, man, a whole lot of people think when you die, you get wings and you become an angel. And, and, and it's, you know, for, for those of us that, that don't believe that, it is, it can, that can be a funny thought, but this is this is largely where that comes from right that they're not they don't marry or are given a marriage but they're like angels uh, but are like angels in heaven so that that's that's the problem when you take one scripture you don't pay attention to context then you end up with many many people like an alarming amount of people that you'll see if somebody dies so and so got their wings today god got another great angel today and you know i have to <laughs> I have to, you know, it's sensitive, right? Somebody just died and it's like, do I, I want to jump on the Facebook there and just correct somebody's theology or do I just pray for them? So I normally choose the latter. Uh, hallelujah. So, you know, I don't know. Don't jump on people about that. But here's, here's why that's not what that's saying. Let's just say that. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What is what is Jesus talking about? Is he Is he saying in that that they are exactly like angels in heaven in all of their... Anatomy, and that basically that's what happens when you die. You become a part of God's angelic host. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about one specific thing: that people in the resurrection they will not marry, nor will they be given in marriage like the angels. He's using the angels as an example of somebody that doesn't marry or is given in marriage. Okay, he's talking about one thing. Uh, and so, if you know, if you've been praying for super colorful, extra wide wings, you know, when you get up there, that's I'm sorry, that, you, that one's not going to happen. You're not going to get any, okay? No wings for you. Amen. Uh, I'm hoping nobody's crushed out there. Praise the Lord. Um, this, so this, this whole idea, it brings up a good way to address um, some common questions that people have about eternity with Jesus in terms of relationship. And, and I will say this, Natalie, uh, my wife, and I have expressed to one another in the past Uh, A sadness at the thought of not being married once we reach heaven. Uh, The thought of losing the relational bond and the closeness that comes in being married to one another has troubled us. Uh, It's something that we've talked about. Uh, Some have even wondered about sex and sexuality. Uh, If sex is a wedding gift from God to be enjoyed within the boundaries of covenant, uh, and we're not going to be married to one another in heaven, it follows that there will then be no sex in heaven. And this bums some people out, right, uh, for just being frank. Uh, I have heard of young people asking Jesus to delay his return until they can be married and have sex, right? Like, there's just, just one thing, Lord. Like, I know there's a cosmic timetable, and everything's coming down to this. But if you could just <laughs> hold off for me, uh, you know, but that's real. I mean, that's, that's really where people are at at times. And so it's, it's kind of funny when you put it in those terms, but, but we need to deal with it because it's real. Um, and, and really what that is, is they don't want to miss that experience, okay? And so I can understand that. But, so we can use these two things as an example to help us think through widely any part of this earthly experience that we are afraid we will miss once we have reached our eternal destiny, okay? So we're going to use marriage and, and sex and sexuality and put those, that's going to be a wide net we're going to cast to think about because those aren't the only things people are worried that maybe won't be in heaven or eternity with God, that that are here now, and and that concerns them. So, first of all, when it comes to marriage, okay, uh, the Bible doesn't teach that there will be no marriage in eternity. It teaches that there will be one marriage. Whatever pleasures we feel we may miss from our earthly marriages will be immeasurably multiplied in our eternal union with Christ. Now, some of you might have to grab that by faith. Some of you may not even understand what I'm saying yet. But what I'm telling you is any part of the marital union that you're afraid you might miss because that's not how relationships are going to work in eternity. The closeness that I have with Natalie here, when I came to understand this, that the marriage, the Bible doesn't teach there's no marriages. It teaches there's one marriage. Once I am joined together with her as the bride of Christ and brought into union with Jesus, my Savior, I'm going to experience a closeness with Christ, but also a closeness with Natalie that I never could have attained on this earth, no matter how long we were married or how sweet we were to each other. And so only anything I'm afraid I might miss by this relational change in eternity is actually I'm going to get immeasurably more of those good things from it. That is true. C.S. Lewis said this on the, on the subject of sexuality in heaven. The letter and spirit of scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all or else of a perpetual fast. Are you tracking with me so far? What he's saying is basically, if there's no sex in heaven, he's saying that that leaves us one of two conclusions. Either our our resurrected bodies are not able uh, to participate in sex or that they will be able to, but a perpetual fast, right? That it's just not going to happen. He goes on, as regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolate at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. Amen. I don't, need, I don't mean to be needlessly crass, and some of you might have been nervous already because I said sex in a sermon, but I just want to say this as plainly as I possibly can. If you think orgasms are cool, just wait until you experience the euphoric ecstasy of basking in the light of the unveiled glory of God. What C.S. Lewis is saying is you ain't seen nothing yet, and I agree. In addition, you're going to experience true and uninhibited relationship with God and with one another. I believe we will see then that the pleasure of sex was really this. Simply a foreshadow and a glimpse of the true pleasures awaiting us in eternity. For some of you that might be weird. I realize there is a wide spectrum from sex is gross to sex is nearly a god uh, represented in, in all of the ways that we struggle Sin has taken the beautiful thing God gave us and made it weird. And so for some of you, it's awkward that I'm even talking about this. Like, hey, I thought we were talking about heaven. Why is this an issue? It's an issue because there's people that would would rather hold off on their eternal union with Christ until they have this physical experience. And what I'm saying is use that idea and apply it everywhere. And understand that in anything that you might be concerned, well, I might miss this about this earthly journey. I promise you, whatever you think you're going to miss, multiply it by a number that you can't even don't even know how to say, immeasurably more, is what awaits you in the pleasure and the ecstasy of being connected to Christ, totally and completely free from sin and death and pain and mourning forevermore. That is true. Amen. Whatever temporal pleasure you are afraid you may miss in eternity, whether it's hiking in nature or relational closeness or your favorite dessert, just know, dear friend, that every single pleasure in this life is just a shadow and a foretaste of the beauties and pleasures of our eternal home. I don't know if you can believe that, but I hope you can. And if you're struggling to connect those dots, I pray that you'll seek until you find that truth, because that'll help you. It'll help put your your appetites and your longings in the right place, focused in the right direction. Now, you might be saying, hey, it looks like you believe that, that's great, and, and all of that sounds good, but do we have any real reason to believe what you're saying, which is that no experience in this life is going to come close to comparing what is in store for us uh, in eternity with God? Is there any real reason to believe that, or, is, or are you just saying that? I believe we do have real reason to believe that, and we've talked about what won't be in, in, in eternity, but our hope really lies in, in what will be in eternity, and so uh, let's, let's read verse 10 and verse uh, 21. I'm sorry, I'm going to read verses 10 through 21 again to you. Because so we've said a lot, but I want, I want to make sure this is fresh in your mind uh, when we talk about what will be in this eternal abode that God has called us to. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. Names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. As he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. I'm glad to know that since I know how to use a tape measure here, I'll I'll be good in heaven. I didn't know that until I looked at this again. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. This glimpse into the beauty of our eternal home is breathtaking. However, I am confident that what human language can express here, and what our imaginations can stretch to understand, falls infinitely short of what we will truly encounter on that day. You understand what I'm saying? John was shown something and he had to try to convert that into human language to pass on to us. Limitation one. Limitation two is we're then reading that human language, trying to use our feeble imaginations to understand what's really being said here. Ultimately, we get there on that day. If this this is a pretty wild description and pretty breathtaking. However, more than we can measure is gonna be the difference between, I believe, what even we can stretch by faith to believe here and understand with our imagination and what we're going to really encounter on that day. Uh, I, heard, I heard of a preacher one time that, that told a story that highlights this idea. Um, if you remember in verse 18, it says, uh, The material of the wall was jasper, the city was pure gold like clear glass. And then uh, verse 21 says, The streets are paved with gold. That's a pretty famous verse. People talk about that. So uh, a preacher told this story... False of course, but it makes a point. So it says that this, this guy was very rich and very faithful. And so he asked God to make an exception on the rule that you can't bring anything with you to heaven. And uh Lord went back and forth with him about it and, and basically said, All right, you've been faithful enough, you can bring you can bring one thing, one one suitcase full of stuff. And so this guy this guy dies and, and he packs this suitcase full, packed full of gold bullion. And uh he walks up to the gate and uh and Peter's there, and he's like, hey, man, you can't bring that in with you. And the guy's like, hey, I got a special arrangement with the Lord. And so Peter, you know, gets on the intercom, checks, okay, yeah, everything's cool. We heard that. He's like, but I do have to check the contents of the case. I can't just let you roll in here. You know, it's like TSA in heaven. So Peter, Peter, you know, makes him open up the case. So the guy opens up this case that he's drug all the way here, and just one thing he wants to bring into heaven. Peter looks at the contents of the case and says, you brought concrete? And that, that's the point right? It's it's not really a joke, it's an indictment on what we think is precious. And really part of the point of this description is to show you that everything you think is valuable, they're going to use that to pave the streets in heaven, it means nothing. And that's that's really part of what this is supposed to bring us to, is a place of an enticement and an anticipation at the wonders of what it's going to be like to be with God forever. Uh, And the, the things that we would hold is of great value. All of a sudden, man, that's, that's just building materials. Not a big deal. My question to you is, have you ever seen something in God's creation that made you stop in your tracks or lose your breath? Things like a baby being born, or a, a majestic waterfall, or a beautiful sunset. That, that feeling, that, that literally where you, you, you stop in your tracks and, and you, it, it is hard to breathe. You're overtaken with this sense of awe that feeling will be perpetual as we gaze upon the place God has for us in eternity. Every little glimpse of beauty you get in this life, every single thing that makes you stop and pay attention, those are just a little taste of one day what we're going to see and what we're going to experience. And you know, you know that this is true. It happened to John. If you look at verse 5, it says, And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. If you go back to the very beginning of Revelation within the first several verses, God already told John, I want you to write down everything I'm showing you. And if you go through the book of Revelation, many times he had to tell him again, hey, you're supposed to be writing (laughs) because he kept seeing stuff that caught him to such a degree that he forgot what he was supposed to be doing. He was struck with awe. And uh, this is toward the end of revelation. He had seen some stuff at this point, and yet his jaw still dropped, and he still forgot where he was, what he was supposed to be doing. The Lord had to remind him, I'm looking forward to being knocked off my feet again and again and again as I see all that God has done, what he's prepared for us in being with him. That's all good, and I think those things Matter And we should think about them because the Lord revealed them in his word. But the most compelling thing about our heavenly home is not what will be there, but who will be there. I'm going to read verses 3 to you, and then uh, 22 and 23 again. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Verse 22 says this, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here's the major thing I think we should pull out of Revelation 21 and every other place where the Bible gives us a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. There are so many things about it that are mind-blowing and stretch our imagination to even try to conceive of, but all of that pales in comparison and doesn't come even close. The what of what's going to be there it means nothing compared to the who. Here's what's most important about our eternal destination. Jesus is going to be there. Jesus, the one who was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth, the one who was there, the Word of God, who was a part of God's creative force and what he did to bring all things into existence, the Word that became flesh, lived among us, died in our place for our sins, and then rose from the grave. Jesus, who has proven to us that his love for us is never-ending and immeasurable. Jesus, who has been indescribably good to us. Jesus, who loves us more and better than anyone else. Jesus is going to be there. And so if everything else wasn't true, friends, and that's, that's really what we got to come down to, if there wasn't 12 gates and there wasn't streets of gold like glass, I don't even know how that works, right? If there wasn't all of this amazing, if there, if there wasn't a promise of no pain and, and we weren't guaranteed there was no morning of sadness, but if all the promise was is you're going to have the closest proximity you've ever had to this Jesus who loves you, What would your appetite for heaven be? What would your appetite for that eternal destiny be? And the truth is, friends, the thing that should excite us most, the thing that should bring us the most comfort and peace, the thing that should whet our appetite with the greatest sense of anticipation is that Jesus himself, our glorious Savior King, is going to be there. That ultimate and final reunion because of redemption that reconciliation because he did what was necessary for sin to be put down, for death to be put to death, and for us to be rescued. That, that reconciliation with our Lord, that's the most exciting thing. Jesus is going to be there. And that is an amazing truth. Something else to think about is that a lot of people will be there. This city... Uh, as it's described, you remember the guy's got the gold measuring rod. It says, uh, it says it's 1,500 miles wide, and it's a square. He says it's, its height, its width, its length are all the same, okay? 1,500 miles. That's from here to Salt Lake City, wide. And then take that, turn it. That's the other way, okay? And you might be thinking, well, I don't know if that's enough space, man. We're talking over time. If you're really thinking, you're thinking, man, there's a lot of people who have trusted in Christ. For a long time, you know, is everybody gonna fit? It's kind of weird that there's these dimensions. There, there was a recent study that suggested you could fit all the world's 7 billion people. Now, this is them standing shoulder to shoulder, but you could fit all 7 billion people in the world right now into a 16 square mile space. They did the math, okay? This city is 2,250,000 square miles, it's big. And it's made of all this stuff. <laughs> and God is its king. And there's no temple. No temple needed. Because and, and this language in here, it says that, that he's going to be there. And, and, and that there's, there's no temple. There's no tabernacle. It, 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 it ties together the ark of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It shows us that when God called for that tabernacle to be built in the wilderness so that he could be there among his people Israel as he was working in them this plan of redemption to bring about the birth of Christ, all of this, it, it all comes full circle. This, this all connects. And ultimately, in our eternal home, there's no need for a tabernacle, there's no need for a temple because the Lord Jesus himself is there. And in addition to that, there's going to be a whole lot of people. The Bible says elsewhere that people will be represented from every tribe, nation, and tongue. I hope that excites you. I hope you're glad that God's arm is not short, but long and powerful and mighty, and he has reached across every part of the world to call people unto himself. I hope you're pumped about that. More pumped than you're acting about it, to be honest with you. Amen. These two facts, the fact that Jesus is going to be there with us and the fact that there's going to be a whole lot of people there is part of why I know we won't be bored in heaven. And that's something I've heard people say. I'm concerned I'm gonna I'm gonna be bored there. What are we gonna be doing for eternity? That's a long time. Well, part of the problem with that is we've had heaven depicted as people's you know being chubby cherubs sitting on a cloud polishing their halo, maybe strumming a harp, right? Like I'd be bored with that in five minutes, right? Like etern- What are you talking about eternity? I, there, I wouldn't. If that was what was planned, I. Whew, I might have to pass, right? Like, I don't. I would I would be a troublemaker in that situation. I was terrible in the classroom settings, right? Make me sit still on that cloud and pluck that instrument. I'm going to be throwing mine at other cherubs and, you know what I mean, figuring out how to make spitballs or whatever. It'd be bad. But that's not what heaven's like. That's nothing close to the picture that's painted in the scriptures, which if we're going to try to figure out what can be known about this eternal abode God's prepared for us, I don't know, maybe his word would be a good place to look. Just, just, it's just a thought. So... The fact that Jesus is going to be with us in eternity, there's gonna be a lot of people there in this, this beautiful city he's prepared for us. I know we won't be bored, and here's here's why I'm saying that. First Corinthians 13, verses 12 and 13 says this: For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide. These three, but the greatest. Of these is love. Let me show you something. Verse 21, 18. I I told you that uh, I don't understand how this works. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The walls of this city, right? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, In my father's house, many translations for a long time said many mansions. And that's problematic because people started to get this idea that, oh, heaven's going to be a personal playground for me. So basically, if I just don't do the bad stuff, I get to go. And even the way we talk when we talk about people being put to rest, that's, that's problematic because it doesn't seem like all we're doing is chilling out in our Olympic-sized swimming pool in our heaven mansion. Okay, I don't see, I don't see a description here of mansions. I see a city with walls that are gold but glass, transparent gold. I don't know. But here's, here's what's beautiful about that. Here's what it shows us. The, the walls of all of these buildings, this thing is constructed out of this golden, clear glass material. What, how, how can that be? If that's, if that's the place we're staying, wh- wh- why would that be? Well, if we have no shame and we have no secrets, we have no need of privacy. We will be free to know God and love God and to know one another and love one another. Did you hear what those verses said? It said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just also as I have been fully known. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Much of our eternal occupation will be continuation of the job we've been given here now to love God and love people. Think about the beauty of eternity, getting to really know all the people that are going to fit in 2,250,000 2,250,000 square miles. Think of, and, and, and let's say, somehow in eternity, you actually get to the point where you fully know and they all fully know you and you've rejoiced in that, you've swapped stories and we've, We've rejoiced in the fact that we've overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and and the word of our testimony, and and it's been eons and eons and eons and eons. and Here's the beauty. We're still not going to get bored because then all of us are going to focus that knowing energy to this God who is eternal and infinite and will never get to the bottom. And so as we seek to love all those people, and we seek to love this God who has placed us here and brought us here by mercy alone, we will never be bored, and we will never stop having the commission that we've been given from the beginning, which is to love God and to love people. You're not gonna be bored in heaven. You're gonna have at least one job to do, I know for sure. And I I just this is pure conjecture. I don't have a scripture for this. Let me just say that plainly. I just don't, I know I'm gonna be there, and I, I think I know what's gonna to happen to some degree as I start to explore every square inch of the beauty of what God has brought us. Together to every corner, I don't know how I'm gonna make it more than a few seconds in eternity without again falling to my knees in worship. I don't know how I'm gonna meet again another person and hear their story of redemption, and how God rescued them from darkness and set them free from slavery to sin and death, and how I'm not gonna again and again fall down and worship to God. And people are like, I don't know if I want to worship all the time, but man, if all you're doing all the time is being confronted over and over and over again with the beauty and the majesty and the faithfulness and the power and the redemptive absolute faithfulness of this God who loves us, how are you not? How are you going to avoid this thing being a constant worship service? I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of that happening. I don't know how I'm going to turn it off. I don't know what you're going to do. But I'm going to have to 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 stop and praise. A lot. So it's going to take a long time. But it won't matter because it's eternity and chronology's out the window. So I get to continue to know God and for him to know me forever. And I will, there will never be a point where I don't, one, one more thing about God is not revealed where I don't, in the same way you do at that sunset or that waterfall or the birth of that child, go, I'm looking forward to that. Being left constantly in a place of awe for all eternity. Forever. And that's, that's just looking at the king who rules over this city. That's not to mention if I look to the right or the left and see what he's actually done, what he's made. <laughs> things that I could not possibly ever imagine in this life. And when you put that into perspective, all of our concerns about things that we may miss from here slowly fade to gray. As they should. I'm going to say this again because I hope somebody will remember it much of our eternal occupation will be a continuation of the job we've been given here and now to love God and love people. Every barrier, some of you right now are like, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun because I'm an introvert and relationships are not my favorite pastime, right? So you're like, you can be honest, it's all right. (laughs) I see some of you out there like, I'm not impressed with what you said thus far. So uh, I get it, but What you're not factoring for, dear friend, listen to me, please. The reason why you don't get the ecstasy and pleasure and joy out of knowing people and letting them know you that you should is because of sin. And I told you earlier, that's out of the window. That's gone. That's out of the picture. Every single barrier to loving purely and completely, every single barrier that you put up as defenses because of insecurities or because of doubts and inability to trust others, all of those results of sin have been vanquished to the lake of fire. They are gone now. And now, with none of that in the way, I get to know you, and you get to know me. And we get to just keep doing that over and over again. And if we get tired of one another for a minute, we get to go look at God and learn something else beautiful about him. And that, dear friends, if, if that, if, here's, <laughs> here's what I'm trying to get to, man. I think for so many people, their motivation to obey God, whether they believe in him or, or, or people's motivation to do whatever degree of trying to please God that they do. So many times people are motivated by a fear of hell and I believe what God wants us motivated is by a hope for heaven. He's told us there's punishment. Yes, that's there and I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to say that that's not a factor but hopefully, ho- overall that it's the kindness of God that draws men to him. And if we had a more robust And in in, in the front of our thinking, appreciation and and longing for this this eternal home that God has described to us in such beauty, the the, the absolute crown jewel of which is the fact that he rules over it, that there's no moon and no sun because he illumines the thing. There's no need for a temple because he is the temple. If we were looking forward to that with the kind of anticipation that that I believe we should have by faith, it, it would change our behaviors. It would change so much of the, the, the sin that we get entangled in. It would, it would stop to a large degree the amount of distraction and deception that we fall into because any of those things trying to pull us over here, hey, 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 look at this, come do this. Hey, 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 come over here, do this. And if you really had this picture, what, what, what could be offered you that would seem to compare? Nothing. We ought to think about these things. It is only by Jesus and his gospel that any of us will taste and see these eternal excellencies. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We, I believe the love of God should compel us to point as many people to the beauty of what God has prepared for us as possible, but we need to also be willing to say the truth. We need to be willing to tell them that it is It is not your own sense of self-righteousness that is going to determine whether or not these these gates allow you in. It is not your own sense of righteousness. It is not the fact that you uh, know somebody worse than you. Uh, Your good deeds can no more keep you out of hell than a stone can stop a spider web. That's Jonathan Edwards. That's on the adverse side. It is absolutely by faith through Christ alone that any of us are going to experience what is described here. And so if we do love God now, and we do love people now, and we do desire for as many people as possible to, to be in this, this beautiful, ecstasy-filled eternity with the Lord Jesus, then what we will do is tell as many people as possible the truth. We will do the most loving thing we possibly can for anybody, and that's to tell them, if you will not surrender to this king, you will not be with him. There is one thing that this comes down to. Will you will you admit that you are imperfect? Will you admit that you are not God and you are not perfectly holy? And will you understand that because of that, there's a separation between you and God? There is a rift in the relationship that he has already proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. He wants that fixed and he's made it very simple. Will you trust in his son? What, friend, are you gonna do with Jesus? That message, if we were thinking about this, if we were thinking about Revelation 21, more often than we were the golf course or our next vacation or the next time I can relax, Listen, friends, I think we honestly, in, in, in our culture right now, and I realize some of you say, oh, well, you're a workaholic, that's your problem. Well, maybe, but I, honestly, I think we rest too much and we put too, much, too high of a, a value on that oftentimes. You, you probably rest enough. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> you, you probably do. You know, I, I, try to think, I try to think back to 250 years ago. Just an average day in somebody's life, 250 years ago, anywhere in the world, we, we, that would be, we, most of us wouldn't make it one day. If you got to spend half your day just making sure you got clean water to do anything, I mean, we would be a puddle of emotional, just uh, you know, my life, right? We like, let's just admit, can we just admit? We, we, hallelujah! Let's be fully known. We, we're soft, okay? We oftentimes we have gotten soft, and and we're thinking too much about how to how to try to create what is described in Revelation twenty one now. That day is coming, but it's not now. Jesus said, while it's day, we need to work. And and he's not talking about cutting wheat or gathering water. He's talking about being about the Father's business. He's talking about as many people as possible. We need to get them this beautiful, hope-filled message that God does love them, and he's proved it in Christ, and they they can receive that by faith alone. There's a lot of work to do. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And uh, if we love God and we love people, we need to get to work. Amen. Amen. May the beauty and the promise of eternity compel us into love-motivated evangelism. May we forever be a people who look forward to with great anticipation all that God has promised in eternity. And may we not be the ones that cling to the temporal pleasures of this life, for the glory of God and for the good of his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you uh, for these verses. I thank you that you have told us much of what eternity is going to be like. I thank you, Lord, you have also only told us what we can handle. Forgive us for our insolence because we often think we uh, do know more than we know and we often think we should know more than we know and the reality is, Lord God, you are good. You have told us What is good for us? And you have withheld from us what would harm us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the the conclusion that should be drawn from this. Not that we should bicker about details or try to argue with one another about imagery versus literal. Lord, the whole point is there is a beautiful, absolutely marvelous eternity waiting for those who put faith in Christ. There's going to be uninhibited love and relationship. There's going to be the complete destruction of all insecurity and pain and sin and harm that has come because of our disobedience. Thank you for these overall truths. Help us to keep focus on those and help us, God, to be motivated by this picture as much as we can possibly understand it, to love you more and to love people more. God, help us to be motivated by eternity when it comes to sharing faith. Lord, help us to not just maybe if we bump into somebody, be willing to share the gospel, but God, may our prayers be filled with pleading to you that you would show us opportunities and give us strategies, show us how it is in 2018 right here in Ohio where you've placed us, God. How is it that we can reach people with the gospel? Lord, may we have a burning in our hearts that would drive away all distraction and all of the stupidity that we so often waste away in. Lord, help us, help us to be focused. Help us have an eternal perspective. God, may we not get imbalanced. May our longing for our eternal home not cause us to disregard this one. Lord, you've given us a a mission and a journey to walk out. Lord, may we join with the Apostle Paul that described this tension he had, that it would be better for him to be with Christ, but that he knew that he had people in his time and in the place where he was that he needed to preach the gospel to. Lord, may may that be where we're at. May we not be uncaring about this, this beautiful promise of eternity. But may we not be so focused upon that that we forget the reason we're here now. I thank you there is a reason we're here now. I thank you we're not just aimlessly drifting through this life. I thank you that you have for us, Lord, a purpose and a plan. God, may we desire that above all else. May you be glorified as we obey these things, as we rejoice in these things, and as we hope in these things. May you be magnified, God, because you are worthy. Lord, I just want to say how thankful I am that when I reach that eternal city, there's no temple, there's no tabernacle because you are the temple. Thank you. Thank you that what you have planned for me is unrestricted proximity to you, that I get to be near you and that you're going to remove every single thing from me that would cause me to stay away. Thank you that all sin and all deception and every single thing that is against or disagrees with what you and your word says, that those things are going to be laid down. They're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. They're going to be gone. And I'm going to be free, finally, to fully be known by you and to know you. God, I can't wait. Thank you for that promise. Help us, your people, not to weary in well-doing as we move towards that glorious day. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.